Voices of Children. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region, Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua/en. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Well, uh, this is uh, I, this is our first in-person event, but actually I, I get this cool gavel. So good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. And I'm DJ Patil, the former U.S. Chief Data Scientist. And I want to also welcome those that are listening on the radio, on the internet audiences, and invite everyone to visit us here at the Commonwealth Club online at www.commonwealthclub.org or on Twitter at CW Club. And today, I'm, I'm thrilled. This is, this is my first in-person event since uh, the pandemic started. Uh, and is still going, but it's 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 an awesome to be here with my good friend Dave Pell, who's has so many different titles and accolades. He's managing editor of the Internet, an educator. He's an activist. He's a philanthropist, author of Next Draft, which you can all get at nextdraft.com. He's an entrepreneur, and uh, we're going to take questions. So please get them ready here in the audience. Thank you for all coming out. I'm excited that you're all here. Big kudos for you all being here. Uh, And uh, please, for those that are online and we want to get your questions in, please uh, submit them in the, the chat section. So Dave, thank you for being here. Thank you for writing this book. Uh, Please scream inside your heart. Uh, There's so many things to talk about. So maybe I want to start with maybe the foundation. Uh, it's almost maybe we should start about like what the title means. Uh, sure. First of all, thanks everybody for coming out. I know how hard it is to get out of the house in this era. Uh, so thanks for coming and parking and dealing with all those issues. And DJ, thanks so much for coming and moderating. Uh, it's an honor to hang out with you in general and even more so up here. Uh, the, the title basically comes from this moment in 2020 around June when the um, the sort of quarantine had sort of hit its first peak where we're all locked in the house. And they opened up a amusement park in Japan, a pretty popular amusement park right in the shadow of Mount Fuji. And uh, everybody was going there and wearing their masks and behaving appropriately because it wasn't America. And uh, they... But they realized everyone was screaming on the rides, particularly uh, one very scary roller coaster that's like a top 10 most scary roller coaster. And so they said, hey, you can come to the park, but no screaming. And it became like a meme on, um, in Japan and in Tokyo saying how ridiculous that request was. 
So the executives at the park had uh, two of their uh, members in suits and ties and their hair perfectly combed with a webcam on them ride the entire ride without moving a muscle. And at the end, uh, a message came up that said, please scream inside your heart. It's like something out of the Matrix. It really is. (laughs) And so people made T-shirts and it went viral and it became sort of a meme of the moment. If it wasn't 2020, it would have lasted a few months. It lasted a few hours uh, because 2020 was a meme a second, basically. Uh, But I just felt it captured the moment of that weirdness of the year, uh, the politics of the year, the way we shared so many things online and the world shrunk during that year. And just the feeling that there was no place really for us to scream because we're all locked in our own houses and uh, the only place to scream was inside your heart. Well, maybe to start with that proverbial, I guess, buckling up <laughs> before the roller coaster really begins. You're, you're a native of the Bay Area. Um, you've, been a, you've seen the birth of the Internet. You've kind of watched it. How did you go from, you know, growing up here to being an educator in, in New York coming back here to, to, to really kind of be part of this core central figure in the creation of, of Web 1.0 and Web 2.0, and now you're also in Web 3.0. Yeah, I, I probably get off the boat before Web 3.0, but <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was uh, teaching high school in Brooklyn uh, as the Internet was starting to emerge, and I had this idea during a class one day. We were discussing this book, Native Son, Uh, by Richard Wright, and my school, the school I taught out, all the kids were African-American or Afro-Caribbean. So it was an African-American literature class, and I was the only white person in the class. And we were talking about a part where bigger uh, Thomas the Key character is uh, sort of on the run after committing uh, one possibly accidental murder and then one uh, slightly more on-purpose murder. And the question we had was, what would you do? Would you turn him in? And so the kids in my class said, a third said, no, we'd never turn them in because the uh, legal system is so unfair to black people, so forget it. About a third said, uh, we'd turn them in because even though we agree with that, murder is so wrong that morally we'd turn them in. And the other third said, yeah, we'd turn them in, but not because of either of those reasons, just because we'd be worried we'd be the next victim. Because in our neighborhood, we don't want people like that on the streets. And so I said, well, how many of you guys have ever raised your hand? Uh, how many of you guys have ever... Uh, known somebody who got shot or killed or stabbed and murdered and uh, like half the class raised their hand and that day we happened to have had a student from a a school in high school in Los Angeles she was the niece of a colleague of mine and she came up to me and she was white and she said you know we just finished that book uh, in my AP English class in Los Angeles and nothing you guys talked about about that book uh, would have ever come up in my class. And if you had started the class by saying, would you turn Bigger Thomas in? Everybody would have laughed and thought you were just joking, because of course. And I sort of realized at that point, this was like when multicultural education was the, the sort of code word of the moment, the cultural word of the moment. And I realized that everybody was trying to get multicultural authors and artists in front of students, which is good. But if you have a multicultural group of people discussing something, then every work is multicultural. And this was just when the Internet was starting to emerge. So I, um, I sort of came back to the Bay Area and I started this site called The Learning Bridge, which was a site where students and teachers could share lesson plans and ideas. And I wanted to sort of break down that barrier. And when the Internet first launched, it was like, man, I can send a message to somebody in Australia or Japan. That's incredible. 
But in this setting, if we could send a message from somebody in Mill Valley to somebody in the Tenderloin or Hunter's Point, to me, that's an even bigger gulf. So I sort of was, the idea was for it to be busing without the buses. But this was really early. I made deals with both Yahoo and Hot Milk cold calling, one call each. Uh, they both, I had custom email and custom search from both of them. And uh, it was still dial-up and stuff. But that was the idea, and it sounds crazy now. You were getting the AOL CDs in the mail. All that kind of stuff, yeah. yeah. This was so early. The worst part is probably some listeners out there uh, or people in the audience who don't even know what we're talking about. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> but the promise of that is the part that's so it's disappointing, but it's hard to believe now that the idea really in the early days of the Internet, what got everybody excited, and of course everybody was talking about making a billion dollars when that meant something, but they were also talking about this incredible thing where you can get people from different communities to be able to talk to each other and that you can build something or create art and have those pixels be touched by millions of people if you get lucky. You know, that was this exciting part of it. It was opening things up and being more transparent. And the idea, wow, it's going to be a bad time for uh, thugs and despots because now everything's going to be transparent. You're going to be able to see what they do. It really didn't occur to us um, that the bad guys also were looking at these tools and seeing how they can use it. And I think that's been a common theme uh, in my book and in other places where a lot of times the, what I consider the good guys uh, don't really know they're in a war until it's way too late and then they suddenly realize, oh, I didn't even know we were still fighting about that issue. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's the way it was from the Internet. I think everybody back then, if we had known what we were working on then, uh, I'm not 100% sure that many people would have been working on it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go to that beginning part of, of, of 2020 where... It's at least what the part that you discuss, particularly talking to your parents, is they were uh, in some sense uh, pulling the fire alarm early, saying, hey, there's a war going on and you guys don't see it. What what was it? Maybe you could go into a little bit about your your parents background and your relationship with your parents that helped you see that there was something very unique here that many of us or the rest of the world was missing. Yeah. I mean, this definitely happened more like 2015 before the, before 2020, my dad was warning my dad, both of my parents are Holocaust survivors. Uh, my dad passed away in 2020, but he, uh, has a book that he wrote about himself. This one, the co-author it's called taking risk, which DJ risk. I was nice enough to read. It's an incredible story, actually. It's not just an incredible story. I mean, it's a movie script. Yeah, it's It's, amazing. If you've seen Defiance, it's very similar to those two brothers. Uh, He was one of only, his only member of his family to survive. Um, He, uh, one of his ghettos, there were two ghettos being combined into one when he was a teenager. And he got a tip about it from a family member. And he managed to escape on his hands and knees into the forest uh, where he survived for about four to six months on his own in the middle of the Polish winter uh, by sleeping on bread ovens to stay warm at night, these outdoor bread ovens. And eventually he was able to get a gun, and that gun meant you could join the partisans. And then he became like a fighter where he blew up trains and uh, you know, happily uh, fought back against the Nazis and eventually came to America and became an unbelievable success, owning actually a couple of buildings Uh, at one point within a few blocks of here. So it's an incredible story. Uh, My mom also, she was upstairs in her bedroom during Kristallnacht 
Uh, she survived that. Her and her sister were lucky enough to match a passport that a relative had for two other kids. And she, uh, they both went to a children's home in France where they survived. And then she moved here a little younger, so she doesn't have an accent. But both of my parents uh, growing up, my mom is not our didact. She knows everything about um, everything, really, history-wise, European history, anti-Semitism in particular. Uh, my dad was much more soft-spoken about this stuff, but he would always talk to me about the news. So that's sort of how I got into the news and became obsessed with the news where other dads and kids would like throw a ball in the backyard. Me and my dad were like Wolf Blitzer and a reporter in the field sort of going back and forth. And he'd have a ton to say about the Ukraine uh, situation right now. Um, which, which I hope we're going to get into. Yeah, like, because uh, he was an insurgent, so he had a lot to say about that. And he survived in that part of the world. Um, and so when my dad would start warning me about what he was seeing, it wasn't just the typical stuff. I mean, he was a real estate guy. So all real estate guys basically already had the same view of Trump. You know, they knew he was a clown and that he was highly leveraged and that he was, you know, actually losing the family money. That was like totally common knowledge. And, you know, if you're in that business. But what he started to see was really during the, the, the run up to uh, the election in 2016, he started seeing that Trump was saying a lot of words and using a lot of phrases that really reminded him of how it was when he was a kid growing up in Poland, hearing Hitler. And if I say that, it sounds crazy, right? It's like another hysterical snowflake liberal, uh, you know, comp- calling somebody Hitler. Wow, big news, you know. But if somebody like my dad, who's the least hysterical guy I've ever met, Uh, probably was Republican for most of his life, um, survived because of violence. I mean, he's anti, he's for gun, was for gun control in America, but he was pro-gun as a kid. He, I'm here because of a gun. Um, You know, very tough guy, very realistic political guy, starts comparing somebody to Hitler. I listen. That's the first time that ever happened in my life anywhere. What, what, What was the moment, like, you know, with every father son relationship, you know, part of it's only going into your head <laughs> and part of it, you're like, yeah, dad, sure. What was the moment that you realized like, oh, wait, dad is saying something critical here. What, what was that moment the switch went off? Yeah, it flipped. Yeah. I mean, there were probably two of them early on. He, he said these speeches remind me a lot of Hitler and he wasn't thinking he was going to create another Holocaust. It was just the danger of the lurch towards authoritarianism. And um, he said, you know, when I was a kid, everybody laughed at Hitler, too. If you remember, in 2015, we were all just making fun of Trump and thinking what a joke he was. He said, that's exactly how it was when I was a kid, from what I remember. But the real moment came uh, right as we were. It was actually the last lunch we went out to before the quarantine. It was sort of a rainy day, and we were walking to this restaurant, and he was complaining for the thousandth time. Um, At this point, he was 96, and beginning to be locked in the house because of COVID. So he was, you know, riled up like a jailed person. He's a very active guy. Um, And he was really, it really was like living with the CNN recording. He would repeat himself a lot about these issues. He was really worried about it. He said, I don't get it. Why aren't young people out in the streets? Don't they see what this guy is doing in America? Not telling people to wear masks, not telling people to get treated. Uh, He's already working towards stealing the election, Um, he's never going to leave office peacefully. Why aren't people in the streets? And so I said, you know, I think people are upset about it, but people that live here or that my generation and younger, they just don't think what happened to you could ever happen here. And he like paused and just looked at me and said, David, you think when I was a kid, if he thought it could happen there, 
And when I heard that, then I said, I got to write a book. And um, my dad was generally better at me than most everything, basically at everything, uh, certainly braver and smarter about this stuff. But he couldn't do this. He couldn't sit here and have this conversation with you in front of a group of people. Uh, he certainly couldn't write a book on his own uh, and probably wouldn't want to write something that political. So I thought, if I can channel that message, um, then that's a useful endeavor on my part. That's not all the book is. The book is like, I would say, um, you know, there's a lot of sugar in the book, and then there's some medicine. And the medicine is really that. The medicine is that we, as my dad once said, we left democracy's door ajar, and Trump walked through. And the idea that it can happen here, and what you're seeing and hearing is actually what's happening, which is sort of the opposite of what Trump said for four years, which was don't believe what you're reading and seeing and hearing. Mm-hmm. So my dad was sort of the opposite of that. So that was, that was the main impetus, I thought, if I can channel that message. And then I coupled that with the fact that there was you know, this unbelievable once-in-a-lifetime experience that we're all having with our families and our kids and our work uh, and all that kind of stuff. So I thought this is also too much to absorb. Like, I've always been a news addict, so Steve Bannon liked to say, oh, um, we like to flood the zone with so much shit that people don't know what to think anymore. So I sort of, I'm like the Roto-Rooter man. Um, (laughs) You know, my job every day is to go out there and say, well, I'll, I'll go through the sewer system and surface the truth the best I can. And so I felt I was sort of uniquely qualified to tell this story, which was coming at us a thousand miles an hour, but that if you pulled back, there were really just a couple key themes that all tied together. Well, for the people that follow you on Twitter, and if you don't follow next draft at at next draft uh, on, on Twitter, it's, it's a phenomenal rotorooting <laughs> of the internet and and the the daily news and and what what is really there and one of the things that that i i've i've been impressed with in the book it's one part funny one part a deeply concerning alarmist but also very personal and you bring your your personal uh dimension thank you and and please keep those questions coming in uh, perfect. You, you bring the personal aspect and you bring all these things together. How, you know, next draft for those that don't get it, you can go to nextdraft.com, subscribe to it. You, you come up with these um, incredibly pithy titles. How do you choose what are the topics of the day? Yeah. Um, you know, I used to go through and I opened 75 tabs is the short answer. And I go to about 75, 50 to 75 news sources a day. And I sort of try to pick out a, a different stories that are uh, give an overview of the day. I, I think of it basically as a modern day column. If the column were invented today, Herb Kane, who was a big writer here in San Francisco, used to do something called, called three-dot journalism, where you'd have a little blurb and then three dots and another blurb. So that, that's basically what I'm trying to do uh, for the Internet, is to give little blurbs, link off to where you can... Um, Read the full story if you want to, but give you sort of your dinner party prep in a mm-hmm. in a nutshell. Um, when I first started it, I probably would bookmark. Actually, how did it come? This is one of the questions Sorry, that yeah. came in. How did, how did it start? It actually started uh, back in the early days of the internet. I'd had something called Davenetics, where I would do the same thing, the top ten stories of the day, but they were all tech related, and it just went out to um, 
basically tech professionals that I was either advising or investing in. I always wanted to write. That was always my favorite thing. So when I started getting into the internet and working on products and working with startups, I said, I still want to write. So I did that. And it got pretty big. I mean, I had like 50,000 subscribers in the early days of the internet. And there were like 52,000 internet professionals. <laughs> so it was pretty good. So I said, this is going too well. Let's change the brand completely and obscure all of my success to date. <laughs> and uh, that's my strategy in life generally. And also... Every internet company died as people who were around here at that point. So it was like a daily obituary column. So I said, what I really want to write about is everything, whatever I feel like writing. And I love counterpunching. So that's when I switched it to all news and it became Next Draft. At the beginning, I probably would bookmark 30 stories, 35 stories to pick the top 10. Now I probably bookmark 12 because I've just gotten good at the rhythm of knowing what are the arcs that I want to cover uh, what are the things that we need to keep tabs on? What are the sort of big American stories that are taking place that we have to keep hammering home, almost like a politician? This is important. And then there's other stuff that's just great writing, feature articles. And like the book, I share a lot of personal uh, asides. Um, I try to put as much humor in there as possible. And I think that's how my brain has become through the Internet, partly, that you know, if you sit on Twitter, Facebook and open a bunch of tabs, you know, you have a crazy weird meme, you have the Will Smith slap, you have uh, uh, the U- U- Ukraine bombings, uh, you have these things that are at one time hilarious and the next thing is horrifying, and somehow you have to like piece that all together in your mind. The other reason I do it that way and did it that way is because it was just too bad, you know? It was too bad in 2020 just to give people the bad news all the time. Um, and that's the way I felt about my book also, that I didn't want to have, here's just all medicine. Here's an academic look at how we're sliding to the right. And let me give you the 12 examples, how Trump sounds like Hitler and look what's happening in Europe at the same time. And it's not a coincidence that it's happening when we're losing all the surviving Holocaust survivors that can tell us what it is because they've seen it before. I, I wanted to share that, but I wanted to share it in a way that was more in layperson's terms. So it could be a read that felt like a ride uh, and felt interesting and felt funny at times, but slid those important issues in there. Well, I think the, the, the saying of your father is a really great one to, to um, leap off of, which is the door has been left ajar for, for democracy in many other ways. You know whether it's public health or all these other dimensions, and and reading the book, you know, post twenty twenty, it's such a good reminder of how much could happen in just one year. And and one of the things that I thought that you do really in a phenomenal way is you compare what happens out of the media channels from the left and in the right. And I'm curious over that year as well as as we look through the world now, how is it, what are you seeing change? Because the news landscape is changing radically as we, as, as, as we're seeing it. Yeah. Well, I think uh, during 2020, everybody became as obsessed with news as I was. So I had friends that are not ordinarily into the news at all and don't even read next draft shame on them. But (laughs) during 2020, they were keep a list. Yeah. Oh yeah. They get cold. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, during 2020, these same people were like texting me. They were emotionally distraught. They couldn't turn it off. You know, so that was part of the story of the year also, that it became overwhelming. And of course, that's the goal of an authoritarian 
a curious leader is to be in your mind all the time. You can love him, you can hate him, but if he's, that's why they put their posters all over the walls, you know? That's why he uh, imitated Mussolini after he had COVID and stood up and waved to everybody when he was ill from the top of the steps of the White House, you know? These things aren't a coincidence or a mistake. Um, so people were getting sort of overwhelmed by all that news. So I wanted to put that in context, and I also wanted to let people know how that happened in the book. I mean, what we saw, especially in cable news, is over the last few years, we've sort of gone from having news to having panels discussing the news. Uh, so everybody on either side of the aisle just sits around and hears what they want to hear discussed, and it somehow feels good, even that anger or contempt is a dopamine boost, maybe more of a one. Maybe hate is probably the key, the leading dopamine feeling that people had. So I went and, to And these, that's true, it seems like, on the left and the right. Yeah, that, that part is definitely true, yeah. I think the left needs to understand why the hate is counterproductive. I don't have any false equivalence between what happened in 2020 politically on both sides. I don't compare Fox News to CNN. One is inventing reality and one is slightly biased in one area. Um, but... CNN didn't do a good job of covering 2020. They just sat there and talked about Trump 24 hours a day and didn't actually cover anything. That started with the first Gulf War. They realized covering one event at a time, which they're doing now with Ukraine, is cost-effective, and people like to watch the story. You know all the characters. You know what's up, so you can turn on any time of the day and be like, what's Zelensky up to now? Uh, it, it became even more extreme during the OJ trial, where CNN just uh, was... You know, morning, noon, and night, OJ, because we knew every OJ character, and we knew what we were getting when we turn on that show. So, like, 2020 was basically like if the white Ford Bronco chase had lasted for a year. Same story, <laughs> Trump, and eventually... That's, like, the best analogy that I could think of. Yeah. It's like, we're sitting there watching, and we're like, is the Bronco going to end? And we're just, no, 2020. Yeah. It's almost like it's still going. Yeah, the only difference is that Trump kept kicking drivers out and throwing them under a bus <laughs> and bringing in a new driver. But, um, yeah, we became obsessed with that, and the news wasn't helping at all. Um, of course, you want to be a well-informed republic, right? You want to know what's up in the news, but, like... America defeated fascism once before, getting one newspaper on their front stoop every morning. We don't need 24-7 uh, obsession that we're ignoring our kids and ignoring our jobs and waking up and checking Twitter and getting depressed. I'm describing my daily life, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, that doesn't benefit anybody, you know. And, like, I always tell people who have news notifications on, like, you're not Batman. Um, you know, you don't see the bat signal. You're not going to race to Peru and rescue people from that mudslide and you're not going to race to the white house and interrupt the press conference either it's like it can wait until later you don't need to be notified this second i don't behave that way but i advise others to mm-hmm. <laughs> well we're getting a number of great questions for those that are online please submit your questions into the chat they'll get, they'll work their way up to me um, also, just as a reminder, uh, Dave will be signing his books afterwards uh, here. Uh, if you haven't gotten a copy, please, uh, I strongly encourage you to read it. Please scream inside your heart. Dave, uh, turning to the what's happening most recently, I mean, we can take a pick from leaving the dar- door um, open with uh, the, the the as you put it the guardrails of the internet. I think actually you have this great quote in the book. Conspiracy theories are nothing new, but the internet removed the guardrails. 
maybe let's start with what we're seeing happen with social media, particularly Twitter, Facebook, vaccine hesitancy, um, disinformation, misinformation. How do you square this and what what should people here take away and the broader audience think about these problems in the role of the platforms? Yeah, it's it's hard to give a, a positive spin on that, honestly. Um, one of the things I did in my book is I worked with these guys at MIT at the Center for Constructive Communication, and uh, they take all the Twitter feed in, much like I do, but they have an algorithm behind it, which they can see what people are talking about. So they had this thing where they uh, had an algorithm say, here are the most popular stories being shared right now by people who follow Rachel Maddow, and here are the most popular stories being shared by people who follow Hannity and Carlson. And there is no overlap. So I asked them for my book, since it covers this year and sort of the 12 months of the year, can you break that down in each month? And you can see if you get my book that there's like virtually no overlap whatsoever among the stories. And that's even as we narrowed down to basically three stories, election, Black Lives Matter, and the pandemic. Even then, no overlap leading up into the election. Top five to ten stories on the right were about Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, most people on the left didn't even hear about that. And when they did, they rolled their eyes, right? So we were like screaming at each other during this across the aisle. And yet we were like screaming not only into the void, but into different voids. There wasn't, there was, no one was hearing your screams or your anger at the other side. And that's not a good way to convince people anyway. But what starts to happen is that on social media, it sort of makes this even louder and worse because, um, the liar has all the advantages on social media because the liar can test messages over and over, figure out which messages are catching on, hone it, perfect it, and then put it out in the wild, knowing in advance that if the lie, the honed lie is targeted to the right people, that they'll feel great hearing it and they'll feel good sharing it. Um, so Twitter is a weapons lab. Twitter is a weapons lab. Facebook is a weapons lab. Um, the big problem the other side has, you know, the truth, and that really was what 2020 was about. It wasn't about right, left. It was about truth versus falsehoods. Um, and I don't think we should candy coat that at all, looking back at all. Um, but what happened, you know, we're hampered on the true side because we're stuck with the truth. The best example of that is birtherism, right? Trump tried a million tweets. He ran for president several times and never caught on. All of a sudden, did Barack Obama have a birth certificate saying he was from the United States caught on for some reason? Um, this is driven by sociopathic narcissism. It's not that Trump woke up one morning and said, I want to make race the focal point of my life. You know, It's that he found a message that worked. He's a marketing savant, and he went full bore on that. It's sad that it worked, but it worked. And that you saw that advantage playing out over and over. Um, so you see that in social media. You saw that in the regular media. And, you know, the victims of those lies, the first victim of any lie really is the person who believes the lie. And we saw that so clearly in 2020. Um, you know, there was, you might remember, there was this one nurse in Iowa on Twitter who shared that she was um, treating people in the emergency room and they were being intubated. And as they were being intubated, they were saying, this is a democratic hoax. There's no COVID. And those were like their dying words. So that's how powerful it is, you know? And I always tell people, I, I don't have any love for the liar. 
Um, you should stand up to the liar, and if it feels good to despise the liar, I'm not opposed to that either. But it does no good to attack or hate the people who are lied to. Um, number one, telling somebody they're an idiot does not convince them to come to your side or believe you anyway. Um, and number two, we are not in their situation. Imagine if uh, at the end of Hillary Clinton's loss to Trump, instead of saying he deserves a chance to lead, she said he stole the election. And then Barack Obama said he stole the election. And like the people who we on the left think of as like the most honest or the most holy or whatever, Cory Booker, our mutual friend, uh, Rachel Maddow, all these people started saying, yeah, it's a, it's a, you got to stand up for your rights, man. They're stealing democracy from us. You know, is there a chance some of us in this room would have showed up on January 6th on the Capitol steps? You know, I think there is. So the hate is just all counterproductive. Um, but being aware of what's happening is absolutely critical. So how do we how do we address the question of it's almost like there's a version of this that we saw during recruitment of Al Qaeda where people are getting radicalized. There's a form of radicalization that that is taking place. And what do we you know, one of the questions that's kind of came in is how do we fight back? You know, the conspiracies are are spreading faster than the facts. Is, yeah. is the answer by Twitter? Is it is it something else? <laughs> Uh, if, is it regulation? Yeah. If that person buys Twitter, it's the jump in the opposite direction. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's hard to say. The, the thing I'll say not to do is to try not to attack our fellow Americans. If you think of it sort of like a, as a rubber band that during the Trump era, the right sort of pulled as far as they could over to one side and sort of shocked us and caught us by surprise. If our reaction is to pull the other way, it just makes the rubber band further and makes it a chance to break. It's better if we can hold our ground and give people another option. Um, you know, you look at the mask wearing arguments, the vaccine arguments. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is have a healthier society. But the damage is so incredible uh, that during 2020, we, we saw that we hate each other more than we hate a killer virus. And in 2022, to my chagrin, and even it's still possible to be surprised when we saw this very clear example of what everybody's been warning about when Putin invaded Ukraine. It's exactly what Adam Schiff was arguing during the impeachment trials. It's exactly the lurch to the right and the threat to democracy people on the left were warning about throughout 2020 and throughout the Trump era. Here it is happening and on the other side, we have this heroic figure and a heroic Jewish figure uh, standing up and saying, no, uh, this is where autocracy stops, right here. And the fact that both sides in America cannot even lock arms about something so obvious and so anti-democratic, it's, uh, it's pretty scary. So be, be our rotor-rooter on Ukraine. You're taking, or sense-maker, if you will, of everything in Ukraine. We have... You know, such a complex situation. We have India and China not taking the side of the United States. We have uh, a NATO that is, you know, or EU that is finally aligned. We have, like, there's a lot going on. But we also have, you know, religious institutions that are backing Russia uh, or, or Putin in particular. We have Putin's sort of messaging as well as their continued uh, push of misinformation, disinformation out there. Right. 
what, what makes sense for this? Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on that part of the world, so I want to add that caveat, but I am a Twitter user, therefore I'll now, <laughs> I will share my expertise regardless of not having any. But to me, the, the Ukraine story right now, I look at through an American lens. Um, it's frustrating that we can't just, um, you know, kill Putin basically and end this thing. The guy is a mass murderer. We saw him do it in Syria. Uh, we've seen him do it elsewhere. Sociopaths don't stop. Criminals don't stop. They have to be stopped. Um, but I, I see that as a lesson that we have to take back here to America. Uh, did anybody try to uh, use media to mislead people about the truth about matters in America between 2016 and 2022? Uh, has anybody from America sided with Putin over our own American intel services? Everything, it's okay. It's, he's just a lunatic. It's just a little bit of a push, a little bit more of a push. And now you see, no, it's not just, it's, that's how you get there, is that little push and that little push, right? The extreme is you only get one news organization, and it's my news organization. The extreme is if you protest, uh, you get jailed like you do in Russia, but... Did we have a moment in 2020 when peaceful protesters had helicopters flying over them and have uh, gas, sh tear gas shot into the crowd? That was America in the shadow of the White House. That was America on January 6th. And Putin senses our division, and it's not unrelated that he's going now. It's he's just a not savant unrelated. in that sort of similar way. Trump yeah, he is. is. He's able to see... Hey, look, I can ex I can exploit a right. fractured society there. Yeah, and so, sorry, just one other thing that I um, want to say is that um, you know we tend to deal with people on the other side, whether it's a small other side like American politics or a big other side like America and Putin, as if we're all sort of in the same universe of morals or wavelength. Like if we just um, point out that this is a threat to democracy, the other side will come around. They're not going to let Trump go that far. They're not going to let people go and defecate in, in the Capitol and threaten the lives of our themselves, you know? That's got to be the line, right? That's our line. That's not... Applying that to somebody else is not valuable. And that's one thing that we've done with Putin over and over, you know? Um, I love your former boss, Obama. But he was a good person. He is a good person. When he was dealing with Putin in Syria, he was just too good of a person. You know, he, he made that red line about using chemical weapons. And then that red line was crossed and nothing happened. And I'm not a big hawk or anything. But to other people in other governments of the world, that has a different message than to people like us. It's like, hey, man, he showed restraint. You know, fewer people are going to die. We don't want to get America in another endless war. But that's not what Putin saw. Putin saw they are afraid they're not going to drop any blood here. I get to do what I want to do. And so far, hey, isn't, isn't that holding true right now? I hate to say it, but of course it's been the worst six weeks in Russian military history so far. But does he show any sign of stopping? He doesn't care about the losses. He doesn't care about the lost generals. He's not getting owned by people in America making jokes about that ship that got sunk. It, that stuff affects us. It doesn't affect him. 
He's not doing a body count. He doesn't care about the body count. He cares about one guy, you know. But everything we see from Putin really is an extreme, you know, if we're 5% of the way there, he's 100% there. A mafia with a country and nukes, mm-hmm. right? So you've, 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 uh, you've advised presidential candidates. You know a lot of people in, uh, uh, in powerful positions in government uh, and given them lots of advice. If you were to give the president advice on how to think about or address a situation, and this comes to one of the questions about how do you think about Tucker Carlson and the questions of undermining any notion of January 6th, bolstering the, the appeal of Vladimir Putin, dealing with the social media platforms, what would be the three things that you would tell a, the president or any future presidential candidate, these are what you need to do. Yeah. Well, he's right not to spend a lot of time attacking Trump or attacking the other side. That's totally counterproductive. I think all of us got sucked into that um, sort of spiral during the Trump era where we just all went on Twitter and said, oh, I can make a better joke than he can, right? But in the end, then we're just all hating each other. And hatred and division is, uh, is like gold for a person who wants to have minority rule. So Biden doesn't have to just make us happy, right? He's got to make people in the middle happy and even get some Republicans. So that's one thing he's doing right. One thing that he could do better is to tout his accomplishments more because we have had a lot of accomplishments um, for middle-class and working-class Americans. Uh, The unemployment rate is incredibly low. Yes, we have inflation, um, it's not that hard to explain to people why. I think you should be much more aggressive with companies. Uh, one thing that he did that was so amazing in uh, he, Ukraine, he President, President Biden. Biden. One thing that Biden did that was so amazing and unprecedented uh, in um, Ukraine was to project what their intelligence said was going to be Putin's next move, right? It makes it really hard to lie about something after the fact when somebody said, here's what they're about to do and here's why they're going to do it. And that was really unusual because we like to keep our intelligence close to the vest. But I, I wouldn't mind seeing him apply that to the domestic battle a little bit more and say, you know, you're going to hear a lot about inflation and of course we have a lot of COVID-related issues and a lot of problems related to inflation. But I want everybody to look next quarter at every oil company's uh, quarterly statement. And let's see if they have their most profitable quarter they've ever had. Hmm. That sort of tells people ahead of time what the strategy is, which we know, right? I was in a hardware store the other day and a guy was saying, oh, man, Everybody knows the fat cats in the oil company are just using this as an excuse to make money. This doesn't have anything to do with Putin. And it's like sometimes the obvious answer is the answer. So I think if he could apply what he is applying in Ukraine to domestic politics, that would be good also. And to just tout his own achievements more. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he should attack the other side more. It's just totally counterproductive. Anything we can do to reduce the divide is better for democracy and better for people who are liberals. But I use that to mean in favor of liberal democracy, not a political spectrum. Well, what do we do about these giant megaphones like um, Tucker Carlson, Fox, others that have been called out for actively spreading uh, disinformation? And maybe sort of a follow on is what do you do with the platform? Should should Trump stay banned on 
these platforms. Yeah. I don't know if it ever made a big difference that Trump was banned. His megaphone was and is plenty loud. Um, one of the key angles that Trump plays, and uh, I find it really odd that he played it and that it works so well, is to play the victim card. Um, you know, sort of, I call it narcissistic victimhood, is really popular these days, where a lot of people uh, that couldn't be benefiting more from the current system are still always complaining about how that system is screwing them over. Uh, I see it among a lot of people that are in our business, you know, a lot of venture capitalists. Uh, I, I see that as the key irony about Elon Musk's personality. Nobody, literally nobody on planet Earth is benefiting more from the current status quo than him. He's the richest guy in the world. He's probably the most famous guy in the world. Every time he tweets an emoji, it's like covered on the front page of journals and business and newspapers. We're falling into the same trap. Yeah, and yet he feels that he's somehow not getting enough speech out there. You know, it's like a tsunami complaining that there's not enough moisture in the air. It's totally <laughs> insane, but it's across the board. I know a lot of VCs that are multi-billionaires, and all they do is complain how they're being silenced and canceled. And it's like, what are you talking about? You're, everything you're trying to do is like a huge success, and you're totally furious at the status quo. Think of how normal people must feel about it, you know? Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit to domestic, and in particular, one of the issues that you actually call out, you t- spend quite a bit of time in the book about this, uh, is because 2020 was a seminal point on racial issues, particularly with the killing of George Floyd, Andre Hill, uh, Manuel Ellis, Rashid Books, Daniel Prude, Breonna Taylor, uh, uh, Natalia uh, Jefferson, Ora uh, Rosser, Stephen Clark. And then we had protests over the summer. We had phenomenal amounts, uh, um, George, you know, especially in the name of George Floyd. Yet we've seen a very complex narrative take place in the media and defund the police. President even brought it up in State of the Union. We've seen this questions around critical race theory. We've seen books banned, math books banned yeah. uh, in Florida. Yeah. It's almost like we made progress. And that, like, how... Right. Help me interpret this. Be my rotor again. No, I'm not talking about this, dude. <laughs> Am I crazy? I'm not talking about this publicly. No. Um, <laughs> you write about it. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, it, this is tricky, you know. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, it, it was beautiful when the protests came out. Um, I went to a few of them, and being out with people at that point alone was incredible. Being there, uh, it did sort of morph into... Board- I recall it was your first moments out of quarantine. Yeah. Being um, out of quarantine, uh, being with people, sort of calling for uh, democracy and its values in addition to uh, for the police to change. Um, But, of course, it comes back to this um, underlying issue where I talk about you have to understand both sides are fighting. Um, You know, for some people in America that those protests going into the street were about riots. They weren't about protests. And for some people in America, the fear of the demographic changes that we're having in America, that means it's not just going to be a white guy's majority anymore. Um, That is a threat. And that's why they've been working for 30 years to pack the courts. Uh, That was their strategy. When we can't win by numbers, let's win in the courts. 
Um, so for some people, we're seeing those protests and weren't seeing something beautiful. They were seeing that's exactly the threat that we're worried about. Um, for me, I think the, the key thing that bothered me in 2020, even more in 2022, is people on what I would say, again, the good side, the people for racial equality, the people who don't pretend that slavery didn't happen and that you're not allowed to talk about racism in America, uh, started having infighting and attacking that everybody didn't have the exact same view or everybody wasn't perfect enough or one tweet was a little out of line. The way I look at it is we are in a, in a battle for democracy moving forward in America. Anybody who is on that side right now, I say let's lock arms and do it and we can worry about these small differences uh, later. But we instead fixate on those small differences and yell at each other instead of sort of uh, unifying around a much bigger cause, which is not about being perfect and never saying the wrong thing, uh, but it's about pushing for democracy and equality and gender equality. And one thing you're seeing now is I like to call it ghost governing. Um, It's what's happening in a lot of uh, Republican states right now where there's these laws being passed that are against, like, the best example was one that didn't get passed in Utah. They were passing a, the, the house. Yeah, against transgender, um, people who are transgender to being girls participating in high school sports, okay? The governor there, to his credit, did not sign it. It didn't become law, but those laws are being signed across the country, anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans, Now, you have to ask yourself, why would the Utah legislature spend any time on this issue? You know how many trans girls are competing in sports in Utah? Four. (laughs) Four. Because I read your newsletter. Yeah, of of those, (laughs) one is somewhat competitive. The other three are not competitive at all. So what's the point of having that law? It's the same reason that Abbott in Texas is focused on securing the border um, and pretending that, like, immigration is some big problem now. When we need immigrants, we don't have enough people in the workforce right now, right? It's a ghost problem, and ghosts scare people, uh, but they don't really exist as an actual issue. It's actually not an issue about those kids. Uh, We were both asked by a mutual friend to write letters, public letters, to trans kids who are taking this ridiculous heat right now. And mine was uh, not as eloquent as yours, but it was really short, just saying, this is not has nothing to do with you. The people whose identities need to be changed are the people that are making these laws. It's sad that they're doing it, and it's sad that it works. Mm-hmm. But we, again, it's one of these things where you have to be aware, what is the other side doing? Why is it working? How do you compete against it? And we tend on the pro-equality side to always step in a little late, like, it's been 30 years that they've been trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now we get to 6-3, and it's like, okay, how do we fight? It's like, I don't know, you got 30 years? Let's make a plan. But I would say the average liberal in California 10 years ago, if you said Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned, they would have laughed their ass off. They said, that is old. That's an old argument. That's old news. Prayer in school, that's been settled. No, no. It hasn't been settled. You have to be aware of what the other side is thinking and doing. Okay. We, we have time for just uh, one or two more questions. One of the ones that I, I wanted to get to here, hopefully uh, a quick one here, is uh, 
do you do your kids use social media? Do they read Next Draft? Is that the same question? Yes, they do. They do use social media. Although my daughter was on a trip, uh, an ocean front trip this last week, and her phone fell into the ocean. And do you call that? So, was that? Was that? Did you pay like the operator to knock it? In no, the ocean? I was <laughs> like, uh, sharks hopefully are there and ate it. Uh, yeah, my kids are into it. Uh, my daughter very much. My son so so. Um, and I don't want to totally criticize social media because during the pandemic, like most things technology related, it had a great side. You know, my daughter at the time was 11 and 12. So she was supposed to hate me and go want to be with her friends all day long. But she was unable to do that except for FaceTime and uh, other tech. But on the other hand, all the many bad things about tech and what it does for democracy. So yes, they both do use social media. I'm not good about stopping them. I, it's hard to tell somebody not to use it when you're talking to them over the top of your laptop 24 hours a day. So they're not as sick as I am. But they do, they do use it. They, of course, do not read Next Draft. <laughs> I don't know if the person who asked that is either doesn't have children or I want to get some parenting tips from them <laughs> because they have zero interest in Next Draft. Well, Nor are they in the audience. <laughs> and neither is your son. No, 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 our, our, our kids are the same age and actually know each other. Um, and I think they, they're, they are dreading the fact that we may even bring them up. or, or uh, They'll never know. That's the yeah, beauty they, of they it. They never know. That's right. Everyone should tweet at them. Uh, w- one of the questions that also has come up here is, oh, and I, I need to mention that the Dave Pell is signing the books afterwards. They are also for sale. Uh, and... We got to, you know, we've kind of gone on this roller coaster. I feel like I, I am, I, I am not just screaming on the inside. <laughs> I'm screaming, I am screaming. I, I, I don't even know how to fully process everything. What are you optimistic about? Um, I think our time is up. <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, sorry, that's my shrink like that. Um, you know, I'm optimistic about a ton of stuff. The, uh, last week, uh, I was actually with our mutual friend, Cory Booker, who is Mr. Optimist. Yeah. Uh, he's glass half full and I'm like broken glass. <laughs> um, but he made a good point that, you know, I think about in light of my own parents' experience. So my mom uh, lost most of her family. She had to sweep up the broken glass after Kristallnacht. And yet she came here. She started a family. She's... Uh, very optimistic, activist person still. Uh, you know, if that was a lot worse. You know, we're, we're seeing in Ukraine, things could be worse. We have issues that we need to be aware of before they get out of hand. So I'm optimistic that people are becoming aware of those things. And uh, when Corey was giving his talk last week, you know, he made a really good point. He said, in life, you can either be a um, thermometer or you can be a thermostat. So if you're a thermometer, you go into the world, and if it's all depressing and a bummer, you just get down and dark. And if you're a thermostat, you walk into the room and say, well, this is what I want the temperature here to be, so I'm going to project that. So I guess I'm, I'm in his... He, he motivates me to get out of the hate mindset and to try to be a thermostat. And since I'm Jewish, it's going to be a dry heat. <laughs> <laughs> well... Maybe talk us through some of the things that you see if you were talking to the, well, you're talking to this audience, you're talking to the next generation of people out there. 
what do you want them to do, particularly to be at that thermostat? Yeah, I, I really think just reaching out and trying to interact with people who have different views in you, than you is really the key. We have, there's two divides right now in America that are underpinning every single thing we've discussed today. One is the economic divide, uh, which is greater than it's ever been, and it keeps getting more and more extreme. And every story, every major story from Bitcoin to democracy to the way people view Putin, all of it, that divide and people feeling the system is rigged against them rightfully uh, underpins it. The other thing is just the divide is so extreme. I mentioned the MIT data. We don't interact online. Um, The people who we follow religiously as journalists don't get any follows or their messages aren't getting through at all to the other side. Uh, On the most local geographic level, we don't interact with people in California from the middle of California. It's not just a national thing. It's even a neighborhood thing now. People move to different neighborhoods. There's a few um, real estate uh, brokerages across the country that that's their pitch. Move out of your liberal neighborhood or move out of your conservative neighborhood. And the problem is, is that when that divide comes, it's so easy to create these caricatures of each other. So, like, I've never hated anybody in real life as I hate, as much as I hate the caricature of a Trump voter. But when I've actually interacted with people uh, who probably voted for Trump in real life or coached a Little League team with them or whatever, we're not thinking about politics. We're thinking about the stuff that connects us, like the fact that we don't have a number seven hitter and the fact that we want these kids to have a good experience, you know? And we're like joking around and having a normal human experience. It's like, oh, well, DJ is a really good friend of mine. It's weird we don't see this issue the same. But politics has become sports and a religion and this defining thing that we sit there and think about all day long. And that's only to the benefit of the politicians trying to divide us. When you actually interact, it's impossible to caricature somebody. Because if if somebody says, oh, this DJ guy is terrible and he's why you're broke, and he's trying to take your education and indoctrinate your kids. And I say, yeah, actually, I just hung out with DJ, and he seems, he's got flaws. But he seems like a reasonable... <laughs> You've been re- talking to my kids. <laughs> yeah, he seems like a reasonably good guy, right? And, uh, you know, that also, you know, almost, I guess in sort of tying it back to my parents' experiences, that was one of the key moves that uh, the Hitler regime made was ghettoizing Jews, because he was also having a hard time getting that message across in certain cities. Certainly anti-Semitism was enough, but in certain, the message wasn't getting through because it's like, my best friend is a Jew. How, I don't see that they're doing anything bad. Well, now that you're out of sight and out of mind, you can sort of caricature that person. So if, if my kids ask me, that'd be the, the main thing. How, how do you do this? You know, because I think it's, yeah, if I this know. is like one of the things of like, it's, it's, we say, get out of your bubble. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Like, hey, I just drive to Denny's in the Central Valley. I, I know I'm just being I'm being facetious here, but it's not obvious to me how you actually go about this. Do we have forums where we? Can yeah. Do this? Yeah. I don't I don't have a great answer to that. You know, usually when I was a kid, I would say it's all already happening locally. You know, right. It's just unbelievable that it's not. We had Boy Scouts. You had religious institutions, Girl Scouts. Yeah, and nobody really asked each other, hey, what are your politics? Or I didn't even know what my dad's politics were when I was growing up, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It took me years to indoctrinate him until he was like 90. Finally, he came around and (laughs) became a Dave Pell Democrat. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's it's really hard. I really think this economic divide, though, is under it all, you know? Mm -hmm. Even if you look at something like Little League, 
uh, when we were kids, everybody played on the same teams. Most people went to the same schools. Nobody asked each other how much money the other person had or whatever. You didn't really care about that stuff. You were all interacting, and the cool kids were the cool kids. And, you know, it. you just figured out a way to get along. Those weren't the issues, these faux issues like politics and economy. But when you separate people so dramatically that all those kids are now doing travel ball and only the broke kids are doing Little League, mm-hmm. Now you don't have that interaction. The parents aren't interacting. The kids aren't interacting, you know. And uh, we have this restaurant in Marin called Marin Joe's, uh, which my dad went to the whole time he was an adult, and I take my son there. And even there, they're having so many problems because um, not so many problems at the restaurant, but in the restaurant, you hear people uh, at lunch, you know, they have a few drinks, and they start complaining that Marin is, like, unlivable now, Um you know, and it, and it is, and that's it's ruined Marin. It's not like it's a benefit. Everybody loses when there's no diversity. You know, go back to my dad's town where they killed all the Jews. We went back in 93. They were still pumping water from the same well, you know? If you kill all of the diversity, the food in your town is going to suck. It sounds simple, but it's actually a much broader issue. If you kill that diversity, you're also ruining your own society. And I, I really think this divide is having us do that. And I'm you know, full disclosure, I'm lucky enough to be on the lucky side of the divide. You know, I'm lucky enough to be investing in Internet startups at a time where an imbecile uh, can make money off of that because there's just it's pouring from the skies if you're in that industry. Right. Let me I want to try to squeeze in one more question. So maybe give me a quick 30 second answer on this regarding truth and falsehood. What's your view to, views on content moderation efforts? At Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. Yeah, somebody did, I don't remember the guy's name, maybe you do, did a great Twitter thread on content moderation. It's really hard. Uh, We can definitely point to huge problems and bad decisions that Facebook in particular made, especially in 2020. But people, particularly online, are terrible. So the first thing I think we have to do is give those content moderators a break. Uh, It's a horrible job, and it's an impossible job. I used to have a search engine uh, in the very early days of the Internet. Um, And a few months in, once it started, everybody started doing the worst possible topics you can think of on that search engine. And it became so overwhelming, I couldn't stop it. And I basically just shut the thing down. Um, You know, there is a lot of ugliness and there is a lot of alienation out there. And people hate their so hating on those who aren't moderating well enough is not a benefit. But I don't have a great answer to how to fix that problem. It's almost overwhelming. Take us out in, in, our, in the last 30 seconds here about what, what is the America you want your kids to grow up in? Um, yeah, I mean, my kids, uh, my wife is Samoan, so both of my kids are like uh, Samoan Jews. So I definitely want diversity to be celebrated. Uh, Being a Samoan Jew, you beat the hell out of somebody, then feel incredibly guilty about it afterwards. Um, And my son is just about tall enough to make me his new victim. And uh, so, yeah, I want diversity celebrated. They're both on board with that. I don't really worry about it that much with them. You know, I don't care. I could not care about anything less than who somebody else is having sex with. I'm so fixated on whether or not I'm going to ever have a chance to have sex. <laughs> um, but my kids, you know, their generation, our kids, they don't care about that stuff. They don't care 
if you want to make out with a guy or if you feel like you want to dress as a girl, they don't care about that stuff. So I think it's promising. I think the things that are coming up in the next iteration of America is what scares people so much that somebody getting theirs means it's taking from them. So to the extent that my kids can uh, come up in America where everybody can be themselves and celebrate the great things about America, freedom and democracy, uh, without that being somehow perceived as a threat to someone else. That would be pretty cool. Terrific. Uh, Please join me in thanking Dave Pell for being here. His book, Please Scream Inside Your Heart, is a a phenomenal read. Uh, Follow him on Twitter at Dave Pell, at Next Draft, also uh, nextdraft.com. You can get his uh, weekly newsletter. Uh, I'm DJ Patil, and now this Commonwealth Club of California, which is celebrating over 113 years of enlightened discussions like the one you've just heard, is now adjourned. Thank you, DJ. Thanks, dude. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.